so excited to welcome today to class um, Jan Smoke. Uh, Jan Smoke currently serves as the Director of Scholar Programs at the University of South Carolina. Uh, Jan received her bachelor's degree uh, in print journalism at the University of South Carolina um, and then uh, afterwards ended up completing a master's degree, a master's of education in student personnel services, uh, now known as higher education and student affairs. Uh, Jan has been a um, a rock in the University of South Carolina community for a number of years. I got to know Jan um, uh, as a campus partner when I was there uh, working as a professional. Um, and uh, today I'm really excited to have Jan on to talk a little bit about this notion of lifelong learning and learning beyond the master's degree. Uh, Jan completed her uh, master's degree a few years ago um, and she continues to learn. And in fact, just somewhat recently, I think it was in the fall of 2019, uh, completed a class in crisis communication uh, from the School of Communication at the University of South Carolina. Um, and, and, and with the ongoing crises right now, I can only imagine that that class has had some impact on the way that uh, Jen does her job uh, now. Um, and so welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. I really greatly appreciate it. Hello, students, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, and an effort to make Jan uh, feel a little bit more at home, um, let me make one quick change to oh. the University of South Carolina Horseshoe, where uh, at, le at least last time I was at Carolina, that was uh, where her office is. And so uh, if that's where it still is, maybe we could peek out her window there and, and see the almost yeah, big picture. Yes, it, we are still on the Horseshoe, although we've had about four different locations, we're still here. Okay, good, good. Um, so Jen, talk to me a little bit about your philosophy on learning outside okay. and beyond the classroom experience. There, I wanna, I'll speak to the class that I took in the fall first, and then I wanna backtrack. Um, because this class, you know, was the most recent kind of endeavor. Um, in some ways, I have to take that back, because with COVID, you have, have to be a lifelong learner now. There's no other option in terms of being willing to learn new skills and new approaches to higher education. And I know that everybody's feeling that, so that's not a new thing. But in terms of the class, the class that I took um, was Crisis Communications. It's a public relations class. I, I was a print journalism major in undergrad. I'm a self-proclaimed news junkie, and I did a concentration in public relations when I realized that I did not want to work in print journalism um, during my undergrad years, but I loved the major and I was committed to the work within the major. I didn't want to change. And so I stuck with it, but we added PR classes to my curriculum. So, you know, I've been in higher education now for um, outside of my graduate assistantship, 29 years. So uh, that's a long time. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of changes over the years. And just most recently, we did um, a search process for a new university president. And out of that process, which was very controversial and definitely nationally discussed, um, I uh, felt like I wanted to um, take crisis communications. 
I wanted to take the class. So when you work in higher ed for a long time, especially I've been on this campus for starting, I'm starting my, I guess, 22nd or 23rd year, you get to know a lot of faculty. And one of the faculty members that is in our School of Journalism, Lisa Sisk, is just, she's an amazing colleague and friend, and she also teaches this class, which is widely known and widely enjoyed by students and graduate students. So um, a couple of things. I wanted to take the class because I wanted to learn about crisis communications. As a student affairs professional, probably my um, expertise would, outside of being in student advising um, and event planning, would also be communications because it's what I think I do best. And so also parallel to my interest in the class is that Lisa herself has a degenerative disease where she's not going to be teaching this class forever. And I knew that if I wanted to take it, I need to go ahead and take it from her now. Um, and so she enrolled me into the class as a graduate student. I did not matriculate into the class as a formal student because believe it or not, I couldn't get all my stuff together before classes started. My immunizations and all that you have to do to like be a grad student. I hadn't done that in, you know, 30 years and it just got too crazy. I really did want it for credit, but it just didn't work out that way. But I took the class regardless um, with her graduate students. And um, it was another, uh, so then another reasoning for me wanting to take this class is that I saw many of my current students who are high achieving students in the Honors College, they were also taking online classes and I felt like I needed to be able to understand their experience for me to be a good advisor and a, and a good employee. And so I thought, you know, I'm gonna take this class for that reason as well, right? You know, I felt like I was not gonna have a positive experience online because I'm still the traditionalist on the face-to-face -face instruction um, but when all is said and done I love the class I love taking it online it kicked my butt um, it gave me a new appreciation for the diversity of students on our campus those who work full-time um, those who are you know enrolled full-time and work full-time those who have children so I found myself at our home computer fighting my teenage daughter for time on the computer to do my class, um, internet issues, the, you know, all of the logistics that can be a roadblock to higher education. I got the full gamut of it, including the fact that I didn't really do a good job initially of really reading through what my first homework assignment was gonna be and realize you can't start homework that same night because it's due at midnight and basically every homework assignment was a two-page paper um, cited which of course i had to relearn all of that so i love the class and i love the content but i also loved um, being involved in pedagogy in a different way and um, feeling more current in what students are experiencing and and what they're learning I reflect back, um, I was laughing a little bit about your paperwork, uh, only because I have 
experienced that at Carolina when I was a non-degree seeking student myself as a professional, trying to turn in all the paperwork to be a non-degree seeking student and, and figuring out the, the waiver to be able to get the free class as yeah. a benefit of being an employee. And so you really did sort of have this experience of, you know, one of the things that I think is to the, my detriment here at ISU is I haven't taken a class. Right. And right. so when students come to me about like, how do I enroll or register? I'm like, uh, whereas when I was at Carolina and I was working, whether in my student affairs role or as my, as an adjunct, I could help the students because I had been both a master's student and a doctoral student there. And so I knew how to enroll and register. And so I found myself actually turning to Kate, my partner, uh, <laughs> as the advisor, be like, Hey, I have a student that's what, what's going on. And she's able to be like, Oh, this, that, the other. So like I benefit from having living with an advisor because right. I, I don't know these things. And so I think that's really, that's really a good point. And then I did that at Carolina during my master's program. I started going to um, counseling center on campus because I was taking a counseling class and I was like, well, let me see what it's like to be a student to go through this process. And so I think that's a really good practice to try to learn the space. Um, and we talk a lot about uh, positionality and sort of like uh, being able to attempt to see the world from multiple vantage points, right? And so you have that experience of being uh -huh. able to be a master's student, uh, sort of, again, um, mm -hmm. learn that. Yeah. You learn both the content and you also mentioned pedagogy, right? And right. so it may inform how, particularly now, as many of what you might be doing is online, how you might be engaging and interacting with your students. So there's like this, learnings. The students thought it was hysterical. Yeah. Uh, because I'm an avid social media user and I posted about the class a lot. And I think that, you know, one of the approaches I take to advising students is credibility. You know, if you don't have credibility with the students, then you're also not going to have their trust. Sure. And so, um, so it gave me a little credibility for them to see, you know, my challenges, my struggles, you know, and my successes and, you know, like I gave my first, um, my first big paper, a draft to one of my former scholars um, who was working in our office at the time. And man, she ripped it up and I was shocked. You know, I fancied myself a good writer, a strong writer. And it was quite a shock because I have not been writing academic papers. And uh, it was really a good exercise. And again, the students, I think, could um, appreciate my, my unintentionality of connecting with them through this experience. Yeah. Now, in terms of other lifelong learning, I just want to add a quick tidbit. Please, yeah. is that lifelong learning over the course of your professional career is going to look different um, year to year. And so I just remember being a new professional, being single, having a lot of mobility in terms of where I live and how I spend my time. And I did a lot of um, lifelong learning. I did a lot of conferences. I served in a on a lot of committees. I was um, in the leadership of the National Association for Campus Activities. Um, I had various roles, both nationally and regionally in that organization. You know, I went to the SACSAs. I went to the NASPA New Professionals Institute. I did a lot of that. But I, I just want people to know and students to know um, that there's an ebb and flow to what you're able to do. And you have to give yourself grace that, you know, there's a lot of times we put on ourselves, well, what should I be doing? You know, 
or versus what do I want to do and what am I able to do? And sometimes those two things really conflict. And so the time that, you know, I got married and, you know, had a baby and did all that, you know, looks really different than my time now that she's a teenager and I can be away from the house more and I can redirect more mental energy into different endeavors. So that's just a little, a little lifelong learning tidbit that I was thinking about in the car, knowing I was doing this today. Yeah. So how do you, um, ride that ebb and flow, um, and sort of plan for this ongoing sort of learning experience? I think you have to approach it that, um, in the same way we often want to approach exercise. Well, if I can't do it all out, if I can't do it for an hour, then it's not worth to do it at all. So I think that being able to capitalize on small pieces, um, or small steps or small experiences and, you know, not setting five goals, but setting one goal to try to do is better than no, is better than nothing. So I think that small steps is better. So another um, personal goal that I have for myself here on my job is that I do some kind of little professional development once a month. Um, and by and large, that tends to be something on campus. It could be um, a workshop on supervision. It could be a workshop on how to do um, our, our, you know, EAB Navigate platform, a diff, you know, a little bit better, you know, but I don't, I, I don't discourage folks from doing small things that still build your knowledge and your interest, because then you still feel like, wow, I'm learning something new. It might not be, you know, it might not be as difficult as taking a graduate class, or, you know, it might not be as, you know, big as entering a PhD program, but it's still something that's manageable that's kind of keeping me fresh. I do love to read, but I will, I will admit that I am not very good at doing my professional reading. And if I had to do things differently, I would encourage everyone to schedule an hour a week um, into their calendar to do professional reading, if not more. But I, I think an hour a week is doable. Um, and that's, that's something that I have not uh, done a good job with is professional reading. One of the reasons why I was um, excited and identified you as the person to talk to you about this is, is, is both because sort of like having this long career, you have lots to share, but also that we don't have to think about lifelong learning or professional development is always the attainment of additional degrees. Right. And so, um, you know, you haven't gotten a terminal degree um, and I don't know if you want to or and that's not even really the question, but just this notion of like there are other avenues to explore within higher ed. And, and, and part of that may shift and change also as we think about sort of like the timing. Right. And so right. Uh, Jen got her degree, I think she said 20 years ago. And so what it might look like now in terms of moving up might shift and change, but kind of riding that ebb and flow of like, do I really want to get this terminal degree? I would never advocate anyone get one unless like they are super committed. It is a ton of work. Right. You can still take classes non-degree seeking. And that's how I got sucked in, frankly, is I took a class non-degree seeking like Jan. So who knows, maybe she's going to go back and get a, a second master's in, in crisis communication and PR, um, which isn't, you know, the worst thing to have in higher ed. Um, no. <laughs> 
So I think, I think you make a really, really valuable point there. And I also love your point about scheduling that time for reading. Um, and, and I think that as we, as the audience primarily for this conversation is new and emergent professionals is hopefully we can, you can work with your supervisor. That becomes part of what is expected. And right. So bring that, uh, to staff meetings, like, hey, this is what I've been reading this week and what I've been learning. And so you create sort of this learning community. I know that is something that um, a former colleague of ours, Jimmy Kahagan, um, when he was over whatever office that was called years ago, um, I got to shadow a staff meeting and they all had a shared reading uh, that was curated. And each month, somebody new was sharing something. Um, and, and that was like 15 or 20 minutes of their staff meeting, which I thought was always really valuable um, and continues that reading beyond that class sort of experience. Yeah, I agree. And I don't do that with my staff and I should, and maybe this conversation will get me motivated to do that. I'll add another little um, tidbit of, of lifelong learning. And that um, is that I found yoga in my personal life and you know fortunately i actually i found yoga through our group exercise here on campus and one of my students at that time led me to a teacher off campus where i started to practice and um i was teaching university 101 at the same time that i found yoga and so i really uh I loved doing both. I love teaching freshmen and then I love teaching yoga, uh, learning yoga. And so when my, when my uh, mom got really ill and we were living and taking care of her, I really, I had to drop university 101 because I could not give it the time and attention to teach the course that needed because my outside time was spent caring for her. She was critically and ultimately terminally ill. And we, lived with her and took care of her. That's a whole nother lifelong learning that we all um, may or may not have as well. But I decided during some of that time that I would like to become a certified yoga instructor um, because my husband was doing also a career change. He was 20 years into uh, broadcast journalism and decided he wanted to go back to school and become a pastor. So we were able to um, move in with my mom, take care of her. He went into his master's program. And knowing that from the United Methodist Church perspective, we could move cities, you know, pretty easily because you're appointed to a church and you usually don't have any say about that. So my thought was, wow, what if I like have to move to like a very small town because he takes a church in a very small town and I don't have anything to do. I can't work. Like maybe there's not a college or a university. So I could at least teach yoga. I could take that with me um, and share that and have a skill that I could really take anywhere with me, even onto Zoom, which I'm about to start doing in um, September. But that was also another endeavor for lifelong learning that I found that the principles that I learned in my yoga teacher, teacher training, all of that teaching was translatable to my scholars. Like I used that teaching in my advising. Um, so I felt like it was this beautiful replacement. I couldn't do University 101, but then I started teaching um, at my local studio and that was really also a, another enriching experience.
uh, uh, one of my uh, two quick anecdotes, one of my biggest regrets before leaving Columbia is not taking a class with you. <laughs> um, and so now maybe uh, that you're going to do it on Zoom, maybe I can, uh, I actually, you're, what is it? Blank on the name of your studio. City uh, Yoga. City Yoga. I want to say Main Street, but that's the place here. Um, and so I never got to take a class with you. So maybe I'll have to change that. Um, and then one of my favorite memories of you, Jan, is at, uh, I think it was at a spring scholar dinner or event at your house. Yes. That, uh, you got me up into a headstand. Yes. Um, which yes. gave some clarity. I was, I think I was dissertating. I think I like left my house briefly from like coding data or writing to come and join some context also, Jan is uh, my partner Kate's former boss. And so that's why I didn't just randomly show up at Jan's house. Kate and Liam were there. I think maybe Liam was already born. Um, and I did a headstand. I think I ate a taco and yes. then I kind of left um, to go back to writing. But um, yeah, I think what you say about yoga is really interesting. And I took a um, yoga 101 class uh, at the local place here with um, a, a, the local studio owner. Um, and it was fantastic. Um, and one of the things that I learned, um, is a different way to go about teaching. She was a phenomenal teacher. And I told her this, I gave her that feedback. I was like, you know, like, you know, I think about teaching a lot as an education professor. Right. Um, and it was really interesting and phenomenal to see kind of the different ways that people teach. Um, and so to hear you talking also about how your skills that you've learned there. And so that I think what's important here, many things are important about what you're saying is that you often may learn how better to serve students through very unique and non-traditional manners, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of uh, the nugget, if you would, kind of about your experience of being a yoga instructor. Yeah, you can't like look at something that you're interested in learning and saying, well, that's not a good way to spend my time. I need to spend it more intentionally on something more related to my career. Um, you got to stay open to whatever comes your way because you never know, you know, what's going to actually benefit um, your career. You have no idea. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know if one can, I think I can make an argument that I've shifted careers um, from being a student affairs practitioner and, and that all happened because I took a class for fun. Right. Um, right. And so whether, you know, very similar in some regards to your deciding to take yoga because you didn't know if you were going to be in a college town um, has still influenced and impacted your career. Even if you haven't had a career shift um, though, one could still argue, you know, you're no longer in activities um, or, you know, where you started your career, uh, you still do activities, but it's very different yeah. than folks over at NACA uh, in some regards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, um, what do you think has been the most, powerful experience or thing that you have read or continue to learn um, in maybe the past outside of maybe the crisis communication class. And if it is that, that's fine too, um, within the past few years. Yeah, the principals in the class um, have given me the ability to look at communication in a more critical manner, which has been really interesting how um, people screw up crises all the time. Um, you know, the pandemic is a perfect example of that. And in my opinion, the communication is, is not coherent, is not unified, and therefore it, it feels um, everything is more difficult because of that. Um, I'm trying to think of, of other stuff 
Oh, wow. That's such a hard question. Um, I, you know, I will say that in the five months since um, COVID, um, I'm amazed at how quickly I've been able to uh, self-teach myself. That's redundant, but how to self-teach. So, for example, we had a we have a big traditional fancy dinner for all of our scholars, and we celebrate our seniors every year, and and that got canceled. But I already had um, the the student speaker had her remarks prepared, and we already had the printed program ready to go and we had all these pieces and parts and so i thought well we're gonna deliver this by email we're just, and so i had the student speaker record herself and i didn't have any idea or any skills on how to actually do any of this we um i'd never done a slideshow and i created a slideshow and taught myself from youtube videos and instructions on the internet how to put music over that um i and so there have been so many things that i've had to learn on a daily basis that i have would have not had the energy to do i would have like made somebody else do it or i just wouldn't have done it at all but because of the you know circumstances we're in um, it just has dictated that we kind of dig in more and quickly to learn things. And that's been really surprising to me these past five months. Um, truly. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, I'm now learning about racial injustice and diversity issues than I've ever taken the time to do in my life. That has been, that is now my new, that's my new area that I'm focusing on that as well as being able to be more cognizant of um, and aware of myself when I use um, pronouns. And I've had a couple of students who have been my teachers on that. Um, and they have been very helpful to hold me accountable when I mess up, which I appreciate. Um, so I did take a course recently um, with Lucretia Berry um, online. Um, um, I forgot the name of it, but her company is Brownicity out of Charlotte. And she is a curriculum developer um, for um, some schools in Charlotte. And it's this class that I took was more of kind of offered to religious institutions but none of it was really religious um but it was a great way for me to understand um racism and how to be an anti-racist which of course i've done a zoom and listened to um abram kendi as well so i'm trying to engage in a lot of these um kind of popular resources that have come to light since all of the protests and i'll be honest i'm embarrassed that i had not dug into these issues earlier so we just get so caught up in 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 you know higher education and what's in front of our face i'm just gonna i gotta deal with what's right here in front of me and when you're balancing other things like family um you know that can be all you can do so I just have to say better late than never 
um, for me to dig into learning more and being more aware of, of myself and how I move through this life and how I can be um, an advocate. There was an article that, that snapped me and it was called um, something like, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. It was, I read it online, like, you know, um, white people check on your black colleagues, they are not okay. And when I saw that headline and read that, that did it. I just, it just snapped me into a different place. And I did immediately after I emailed um, a bunch of my colleagues and it, it's, it's things that I've, I've, they're starting to make more sense to me. People are tired. They want other people to add, you know, advocate for them. And that's our, our job in higher ed is to advocate for everybody. I was listening to a podcast earlier and there's this brilliant woman on there and I just like, I, I don't, I, I need to look at the podcast notes because she was a guest, not the host. So I don't, I, I don't know her name, um, but she's a activist uh, around sort of uh, more, uh, particularly women of color uh, for uh, getting elected. Um, and, um, and she said this thing that I've said, I've, I've heard many, many times, obviously, um, but it was just the way that she said it with such passion uh, was phenomenal. She was basically like, you know, thinking about like tired about hearing about racism or tired about talking about racism. Well, like shit, like I'm tired of dealing with this shit. Right. Um, and so like, you know, like it's always a good reminder to hear um, when, um, you know, then going gets hard. And, and I've always said like, as a, a white person, it's really easy for me to like, I don't have time for this right now because it doesn't impact me in the same way uh, that uh, um, my black and brown uh, and students of color and friends and colleagues. Um, so um, something to keep in mind. Um, and, and I want to go back uh, a few moments. You talked about being big on social media. Um, and so I learned a lot early on in my career around racial justice issues through Twitter um, and other means of social media. So do you use social media, whether it's about sort of like anti-racist work or professional development, ongoing learning in general, or is that just like, I know you also, and I hope I don't out you, uh, at one point you were a big fan of following celebrity chefs. Oh uh, yes, still. Is yeah. it just the chefs or is it also a platform for learning for you? It, both, yeah. I ha So um, I don't know where it started, but I started um, being more aware on Twitter of our, um, black and brown students on Twitter. And I started following a couple of those students because their tweets were so funny that they caught my eye. And then I started following more and more and more and more and more students. And that's where it started. So yes, I'm starting to learn a lot about, to start with just that black Twitter is a thing. I mean, that's its own thing. And, you know, a lot of times I go to black Twitter to learn things specifically. Um, if I, if I, there's something that I kind of hear and, you know, it's probably being talked about on Twitter, but yes, I do use Twitter for a learning tool much more so than Facebook. Um, and I still do love my celebrity chefs and I had a little Twitter conversation with Ted Allen, the other week or month ago. Um, so yes, but I think Twitter is a great place to be, to be able to connect 
and learn um, from others because the audience is so broad, you have access to just about everybody. Um, and, you know, these authors and these speakers and these educators and professionals, you know, they almost all have Twitter handles that you can follow. And then it's brought into your awareness more quickly, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of uh, free education. Yeah. Right, like a lot of folks posting their thoughts, which are incredibly important um, and it's easily accessible. Um, and so it's a way of kind of continuing your learning. Um, do you follow Michael Twitty on um, Twitter? No. No, but I will. Um, he, I, he might be the intersection. Uh, he's a, I think he's a chef. Um, I'm going to look him up. He wrote a book and he talks about, um, he was also featured in the new series by Padma Lakshmi. Um, oh, I love her. Yeah. And so she has a, a, a series that I'm watching right now. Uh, Taste of America or Tasting America, I believe it's called. Um, where it talks about different cultures through food. And one of the episodes is about um, um, the Gullah Geechee. Oh. Um, off the coast of South Carolina in parts. Um, and I interacted with and had a lot of students uh, that were um, uh, Gullah. Um, and so uh, he talks about that. And so he's a, he's a, a black man and he talks about... Um, I found him. Yeah, so he's great. I I through like some magazine that was like, I, I think one of my colleagues brought in a bunch of magazines for arts and crafts projects or whatever. And it was like garden and gun or Southern living, some sort of like magazine that like is not my forte, but there was this article in there and he, he had wrote it or was interviewed and I fell in love with him then. It was just like 2011, 2012. Um, so he talks a lot about the intersection of food and race and racism. Um, he does a lot of cooking, um, uh, sort of in the, the way that, uh, enslaved people would have had to cook. Uh, wow. so I think he does that on Lakshmi's show as well. Um, so anyways, just, a, a person that I, I find, um, generative, um, that I think is the intersection of sort of what we're talking about, both that chef and racial justice. Um, well, Jan, um, if the students wanted to get in touch with you or in contact with you, what is, uh, what is the way to do that? Have them email me at jansmoke, all one word, J-A-N-S-M-O-A-K, at sccouthcarolina.edu. Cool. They can also follow me on my social, which is USCJAN. Uh, well, Jan, thank you so very much for your time uh, and the conversation. It was lovely to catch back up with you. Yeah. These days we'll be uh, back on the horseshoe, uh, take, taking a walk together again, uh, maybe going to the grill like we used to do over the summer. That's right. That's uh, right. Until then, have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Y'all have a great school year.